0: Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I am your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Kyle Schmidt, Vice President, New Product Development and R&T Engineering, Safran Landing Systems. On today's episode, Kyle and I discussed lightweight landing gear and the decarbonization of aviation. We hope you enjoy this episode. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Grayson. It's great to be here. I'm super excited to have you here because I think landing gear is cool. You think landing gear is cool. And I was speaking to my wife and I said the most important part, without really high-quality landing gear, the plane can take off and can't come down. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. To kick things off, what goes into landing gear?
1: You know, landing gear is a really multidisciplinary topic. Uh, you know, you've got structural kind of engineering. Uh, it's really a, what I love about landing gear is it's basically our robot. That moves from one position to another it absorbs energy but it's also the the main structural item that's holding up the airplane on the ground so you and you know it's got to be reliable it's got to work every time and so there's a lot that goes into it to make sure that uh, it's strong enough it's going to last the life it's going to be light because nobody nobody wants the landing gear when you're flying right because then it's just unwanted baggage (laughs) you know and it just goes to fuel burn and everything so you really only want it you know when you're taking off and landing, as you said, and when you're rolling around on the ground. So we put a lot of effort into making sure that they're lightweight, uh, that they're strong, that they're going to last a long time, uh, the 30 years of an airplane's life.
0: Landing gear lasts 30 years?
1: Yeah, they usually have an over to haul or two in that sort of period, but most commercial, air, large commercial airplanes are designed usually for something around a 30-year life. Some can last longer than that, but that's kind of the, the nominal value that uh, that's taken. And uh, landing gear designed to last that uh, these days often with only one shop visit where they're uh, taken in, taken off the airplane, pulled apart, stripped down, inspected, and then uh, rebuilt back up and put back in service.
0: You, you think about it, these planes weigh 100 ton plus planes. They're landing and taking off multiple times a day. They're landing on different types of surfaces. How is the landing gear engineer to take that abuse and that impact that they do every day?
1: Yeah, so <clears throat> a lot of work goes into figuring out, well what is the likely service experience that an airplane is going to see? You know, what's the spectrum of loads that are going to be experienced? Uh, you know the the landing gear and the rest of the aircraft structure are designed to take the static strength of a, an event that may only ever happen once in the lifetime of the airplane, or, or maybe not in the life of every individual airplane. Uh, but then, from a day-to-day basis, we're worried about the fatigue strength. We're worried about the endurance. And so, what are the loads that that an airplane sees, you know, day to day? We put those uh, with experience. We build up overall uh, the outline the spectrum of how things are experienced, and then we design for that. We look at a lot of analysis to make sure that the, the metal parts are going to withstand that over time. We do a lot of testing to verify that. And then we do a lot of follow-up in service to make sure that the assumptions we've made as, as a company, as an industry, are correct and uh, that the airplanes are actually being used that way
0: i'll ask you a scenario for instance on this one side we have a cargo airplane and on this side we have a passenger commercial plane obviously the weights are different the cargo plane could be doing more do you have to engineer the landing gear different based on the weight of what the plane's going to be hauling say cargo versus passenger
1: It really depends. I mean, if it's a purpose-built cargo airplane, like some sort of military transport airplane, then it really would be designed a little bit differently. The mission would be different right from the outset, and uh, things would go into it to to consider that there's really quite a difference in the the behavior. And often a lot of military transport aircraft are designed to operate to semi-improved runways. They're going to have rougher runways, uh, soft fields, things like that. A a lot of uh, commercial cargo is done in uh, in modified passenger aircraft. So it's usually a you know a passenger airplane that's been designed from the outset to carry containers uh, in in the in the belly underneath the floor, oh, and then it's been adapted to perhaps take uh, containers on, on the floor. And those when they make those adaptations at an aircraft level, they're generally working within what was originally intended for the passenger airplane. So the the missions aren't overly different. Uh, so it really depends on what the outset is from the beginning.
0: When a plane's coming in for landing, let's just use a tarmac that you would see around the world, commercial airport, is there a maximum speed that the planes could come in for the impact on the brakes? There's
1: not necessarily a maximum there. That depends on the type of airplane uh, that it is. Generally, you want to get the airplane moving as slowly as you can, safely. Uh, Before you come into the touchdown, it reduces the amount of... uh, of energy you need to put into the brakes. It reduces the amount of uh, damage that's done to the tire as the tire is spun up to speed. There, there, I guess there are some theoretical limits. I mean, you uh, you probably couldn't land at Mach 1. You know, it would probably uh, <laughs> really really drive some, some issues in, into the airplane. But often, you because you need to spin up the tires, a high-speed landing is particularly hard on the tires. You know, the space shuttle, which landed at quite a high speed, uh, that was uh, quite demanding on the tires because it, uh, it went—you know—those tires go from zero to 300 miles per hour in a in an instant. You know,
0: I take for there was about a couple of weeks ago there was a gentleman he was caught like a football match as the planes in Heathrow. the winds coming from the left, it's coming from the right. I found it engaging. I'm like, oh, I'm watching I'm watching a football match. Hmm. What impact does that have on the landing gear? Those planes are wobbling left. Or, oh, this one's, it's, it's going down. It's turned, oh, the pilot's coming back. And he's doing this thing. What impact does that have on those windy conditions? I mean, really,
1: it's uh, its probably very exciting to watch. You know, I think we, uh, I, <laughs> I, I've watched some of that as well. You know, so there's a couple uh, couple airports, especially in the UK, where there's spotters get out there and there's a lot of good wind and they're all over the sky and they come down and, and touch down. And, you know, it looks incredibly, uh you know, it's, it's riveting to watch this, and uh, it's quite a spectacle. I think in the landing gear world, you could actually, the, from the landing gear's point of view, it's all pretty boring, I would imagine. You know, r- really, the, the landing gear is designed to, to take that sort of abuse. Anything which is inside the normal envelope of operation really isn't going to cause too much of a problem. Uh, and so you know, when you look at a, an airplane, uh, most large commercial airplanes by regulation are designed to be able to hit the ground at 10 feet per second as the, the vertical speed that they're coming down at. And, uh, and there's usually a bit of margin to go beyond that uh, before you start getting into any sort of problems. But on top of that, they're designed to take about half the load that they would see vertically uh, in the sideways direction around the same time. And so so really what looks like a, quite an event from, a, from an outside observer point of view is probably well within the design envelope of the landing gear end of the airplane.
0: When you design the landing gear you engineer, do you run it through all different types of crazy out there scenarios? This possibly could happen. There's a one in one million chance, but we're going to test for that.
1: Yeah, it's a mix uh, of uh, test and analysis, really. It's hard to test for every single event, but we do consider that uh, lots of events by analysis. And, uh, you know, one in a million actually, uh, you know, from an airplane, a commercial airplane point of view, one in a million isn't rare enough. And uh, commercial airplanes are really designed for events that are at the kind of one in a billion occurrence level. You know, if they're going to have a really nasty outcome, then one in a billion is about the maximum you could accept. So we do look at a lot of things that, you, you know, we certainly can't do a billion tests looking for the one outcome. Uh, so the, that's mostly done by by analysis, looking uh, systematically with a, you know, a failure mode and effect analysis and a bunch of other tools. What can fail? What can go wrong? Is there enough redundancy there? Uh, what happens if this happens? you catch that uh, but for those sort of loading events those extreme events you know we, we do a lot of interesting things in terms of uh, the landing gear is drop tested uh, so we do simulated landings uh, on uh, on each landing gear as part of the certification and uh, for those you go up to the the limit load that's at 10 foot per second at the maximum landing weight and we typically go beyond that up to about 12 feet per second these are large commercial airplane numbers if it's a Sometimes going on a U.S. aircraft carrier, the, the numbers are much higher, for instance. And so we would have that uh, collection of, of testing. And then uh, there's uh, static testing, uh, limit and ultimate strength testing that happens. There's fatigue testing, uh, where we uh, simulate the entire life structurally of the landing gear. Uh, over the, Generally, those tests take several years to run. And looking to see how they behave. And then a lot of individual equipment tests, looking at the performance of everything, uh, looking at the environmental conditions. Does it operate properly when it's really hot? How about when it's really cold? Cover the whole whole wide uh, range. Uh, does it work when it's covered with ice, for instance? So all of those things get uh, tested to prove that it's going to be reliable in service.
0: It, weathers is interesting. You can be in Alaska, it could be very cold, or you can be in in Phoenix, Arizona, and it would be 120 degrees in the middle of August. Is there temperatures that the plane, the aircraft can only land at a certain temperature because either the tire or the gear, is there temperature constraints on where a plane can and cannot land?
1: Yeah, well, I think uh, once you've taken off, the plane can always land, uh, regardless of the uh, the temperature. My uh, my flight instructor once told me, you know, takeoffs are optional, landings are mandatory. um uh, <laughs> You know, there's, there's a lot to that. But, uh, you know, we knew, that, was it last year or the year before, there were some pretty hot temperatures out in Arizona and some flights were cancelled because they were beyond the limits for the airplane. And, uh, you know, I, the aircraft industry, the aerospace industry, is a very conservative industry. And uh, we, we design for a, a wide range of, uh, of events. Uh, we test for those. Uh, we do a lot of analysis for them. But if you're just a degree over the proven limits, People's natural conservatisms will come in, and, and uh, so the airplane would probably have been entirely fine to fly in those uh, in those situations. But generally, as an industry, we are very reluctant to take any risk at all, and so uh, they would have kept the airplane on the ground practically. For something like a landing gear, high temperatures maybe not necessarily a, a huge issue. High ambient temperatures like that. Colder temperatures can be uh, more of a problem. Uh, You know, as you get down to the really cold temperatures below minus 40, down to minus, you know, minus 50, minus 55, things like that, you know, rubbers get pretty hard. The compressed gas, which is inside the shock absorber, and and the oil, which is inside the shock absorber, is contracted. It's not doing as much uh, work as it would before. And so the cold temperatures are often harder to meet the performance requirements than the high, high temperatures.
0: You hit on a lot of interesting things around um, the landing gear. So your typical passenger, they look out the window, well, oh, there's a landing gear, and they, they feel it on impact. But how does it work?
1: Well, I mean, really, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things in the landing gear, but fundamentally, most of it's a, it's a big shock absorber. And unlike the shock absorber that's in your car, uh, where often you've got a, a metal coil spring or some sort of metal spring that does the springing, and then you've got a, an oil damper. Uh, in the landing gear, we combine... The, the spring and the damper together and typically the spring is compressed gas usually compressed nitrogen and it's a type of damper which is known in other industries but uh, it's an pneumatic is the most commonly uh, found type of uh, shock absorber and so you, you've got that shock absorber which is there to absorb the vertical landing energy as well as to damp out bump loads and things like that and then you've got a bunch of structure around it which is designed to hold that to the airplane and allow it to pivot and rotate up into the, uh, into the bay so it can retract. Uh, the, the reason to retract the landing gear during flight is to reduce the drag uh, and allow the airplane to go further and faster. And so you've got a lot of uh, structural bits which are designed to fold up and uh, allow it to retract, but then lock uh, and hold it rigid in the extended position. Uh, at the bottom of the shock absorber, you've got uh, an axle or several axles uh, which are going to hold the wheels, brakes, and tires. And, uh, and then you've got all these systems which link all of those things together, put the brakes on, control the brakes, make sure that there's appropriate uh, anti-skid braking, which is quite interesting in and of itself. And uh, and so those are those are a bunch of the bits that all work together. And then you've got indication systems that uh, let the airplane and the pilots know the status, whether there's any issues, and how everything is working.
0: Anti-skid braking. Yep. You said interesting. No, I'm interested. Sure. What is it?
1: Well, we know uh, most of our cars these days have anti-lock braking uh, systems, which are designed to predominantly keep the wheels turning so that we can just stomp that brake pedal and we can keep steering. Uh, one, one company used to advertise it as stomp and steer, I think, you know, was the, uh, <laughs> the way to go. And those, uh, those brake control systems in cars are, are pretty impressive these days as well. Uh, but on, on aircraft, the goal has been, uh, because in general on aircraft, we don't put brakes on the nose gear. There are always exceptions, but generally you have steering. Uh, available. The purpose on the on aircraft ones is to really maximize the braking deceleration capability. And so the anti-lock braking systems, which are used, the anti-skid braking systems, which are used on aircraft, are seeking the maximum deceleration, or seeking the maximum tire-to-ground friction that they can get. And they are constantly playing with the brake pressure to take it to the a point of incipient skid of the tire, and then backing off slightly, and then finding that peak again. So they're always hunting for the best it can do uh, given the uh, given the friction and grip that's
0: available with all the, the parts in the landing gear and you alluded to this earlier wait what is your average landing gear way
1: it's uh, it's it's tough to give you just a, a number on that because there's really no average airplane but maybe as a percentage is the the way to look at it so a typical landing gear system so the the complete set of landing gears uh, wheels brakes tires all the valves and bits and pieces probably runs at around a three and a half percent of the all-up weight of the aircraft. So that would be the, the complete weight of the airplane, fuel, people on board and everything like that. You sit at that sort of three and a half percent range. <clears throat> now that's, uh, you can go lighter and you can go heavier. It depends on what type of airplane it is. If it's a special purpose airplane, uh, we mentioned uh, military cargo airplanes, they need to land on soft fields. So you're going to necessarily have more landing gears for that. So they're going to have a yet a higher percentage. Um, you can have some airplanes that are a little bit lower. But that, that's sort of roughly where it sits.
0: The 3.5% of, of the average weight of a plane goes into the landing gear. There's obviously the airlines, commercial airlines, I'm assuming same the military, they want to make the aircraft lighter for a variety of reasons. Oh, yeah. As it, they look to make it lighter, how do the metals change on the landing gear?
1: Well, it's a, it's a good question. You know, historically, the, the real winning medal for, for landing gear has been ultra-high tensile strength steel. Uh, steels that are up at the kind of 280 to 300 ksi ultimate tensile strength, so about as, about as strong as you can get in a metallic material, and uh, those have been the standby materials for for many many years. Uh, so one of the ways in the metallic world to go lighter is to move to some high strength titanium materials, and we see a lot of airplanes out there over the past 20 years of putting more and more titanium into the uh, into the landing gear. Now titanium. the titaniums that uh, we're talking about here are are very strong but they're not as strong as steel but their strength to weight ratio is uh, is much better than steel or aluminum and so that's how they they get on but you need to have the the space available to use them if you are really volume constrained then steel is still probably the best material to go for because it gives you the smallest part to do the job Uh, but uh, titaniums are the uh, are a great way forward but then looking out to the future, you know, where are we, you know, what, what's after titanium? Where are we going to? Um, could move away from metals into more composites, which is where some of the, uh, you know, a lot of airframe structure has gone. Really what's out there in sort of clear blue sky is maybe metal matrix composites, composite material where instead of being a plastic, it's uh, the reinforcement is actually a metal, and uh, but you have fiber reinforcements. Now, they're always perennially tomorrow's material.
0: Tough to, very tough to industrialize those. Where does Saffron's carbon brakes technology fit into that ecosystem?
1: It's a good question. So in in the past, uh, most brakes were metallic brakes. So you know, in the in the friction brake, you're uh, you're generally you need to store the heat in something. So you know, basically you clamp those brakes on in your car. You know, typically got a, a brake rotor. Usually it's a probably a, a cast iron of some sort. You've got some uh, centered friction materials that are pushing against it. Uh, typically in cars, you know, we've got one rotor at each corner. You know, I've got an, an old car; it's got drums on the back. But basically, the uh, the the idea is, you know, you've got something rotating. It's a chunk of uh, cast iron, and you've got some frictional material that pushes against it, and the heat goes into the into the metal part. On the uh, the landing gear world, um, light airplanes have brakes that are just like that. Uh, but as the airplanes get heavier and heavier you need uh, more and more energy and you're trying to put more and more energy into a relatively small volume and you also need to get a fairly high torque and so what we look at doing there is we end up with multiple disc brakes so you've got uh, a stack of discs that turn and a stack of discs that don't turn and you squeeze those together and uh, in the past those were predominantly steel was sintered material. There was some time where beryllium was used as a material there, which was quite light. But beryllium has quite a bit of health hazards associated with it, so the industry has moved away from beryllium. But uh, reinforced carbon carbon is really the standout material uh, to um, uh, to replace metallic brakes. And uh, really, that's a, you know that's a real strength for Saffron landing systems is in the development of um, of that carbon carbon material. That material reinforced carbon-carbon was used for things like the space shuttle leading edges. Uh, This was originally a material developed for rocket engine, rocket nozzles, things like that. It's one of the few materials that has structural strength up at 2,000 degrees C, something like that. So it can be glowing incandescent and still has some strength. And um, so that the material there, it stores heat, but it also is a reasonable friction material. And so in a reinforced carbon-carbon brake. Uh, the rotating part and the static part, are uh, they're, they're, they're both the heat sink and the friction material itself, which gives an advantage. And on a, an airplane like a 737 or an A320 or something like that, to replace steel brakes with carbon-carbon brakes saves hundreds and hundreds of pounds at the aircraft level. It is a, a huge weight savings. and You see, most modern uh, commercial airplanes almost use uh, carbon brakes
0: exclusively because of that huge weight advantage. The airlines that are going to operate the A320 or the 737, they'll, they'll save money, especially with rising jet fuel prices. And if you just look at the um, New York Harbor's trading at $732 a barrel, those tickets are going up. So if you can reduce weight, that's really a positive. So Saffron's developing this really interesting, I frankly call it cool technology. So it's got me thinking you, you, this type of metal, that type of metal. How do you do? De- put a plan in place to ensure the consistency in your supply chain. So, If you're going to get metal, say from vendor a and you're going to get the carbon from vendor B and then let's say B merges with C, how do you ensure consistency and that supply chain? So the material that you're getting, you know, is high quality and it'll be safe for your customers.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things we see in, in the aerospace industry in general is that there is a fair amount of standardization of materials uh, so the a lot of materials are, are standardized by something like a, an AMS spec and uh, those include some quality performance uh, aspects saffron landing systems we also have our own material specs which may use something like the AMS as a uh, as a baseline but then we add on top of it our own uh, needs uh, what we uh, we want from it and that uh, that would give the technical requirements uh, but then one of the things that we do and a good example is that ultra high tensile strength steel that uh, is really the the bread and butter of landing gears. You know that is a is a huge material for us. We buy from a number of different vendors. It can be made in a number of different ways, but we work with the the supply chain to put quality control process into into place. Even to the point of uh, looking at uh, melt monitoring. So, you know rather than just checking that the material is okay when it arrives at our you know, on the back of a truck at our facilities, we've been involved right from the beginning of the melting of that uh, material with our suppliers, make sure that the process that they're following uh, meets uh, what we're after, also takes advantage of the learnings that we've had over the years about what makes a good material, what do you need to control at certain points. And so the way we do it is through, of course, a, a number of rules that need to be followed, but really it's engagement with those suppliers' engagement with the partners to make sure that we are together putting together a, a great material and a consistent material.
0: It sounds like you have a great supply chain team.
1: Absolutely, and it you know it's a global supply chain, right? The this world is uh, is globally interconnected. Uh, we're bringing in material from all over the world, and then we're selling it onto airplanes that fly over all over the world, and uh, so and and it's always a changing environment. So we've got a a, a great team that goes out there and, and works with the suppliers. And we've got great suppliers and partners that are committed to providing high-quality material in that area.
0: When you look at the global trends, there's there's a move towards electrification in, in the ground, but it's, it's coming to aircraft. There's a large um, movement towards electrical aircraft. There's also hydrogen aircraft coming. As, if you want to say alternative fuels and electrification come online, does the landing gear have to change?
1: It may very well need to change. It's possible, you know, some of the alternative fuels, things like e fuels and, and synthetic aviation fuel, are not going to change the airplane itself, although the infrastructure would change significantly. Uh, something like hydrogen is, uh, is going to significantly change the airplane because the volume. Uh, of fuel that you need to have on board to do the job increases significantly. Even if the weight doesn't change, from the, or the weight is reduced with the hydrogen, the, vo- the size of the tanks is quite large. And so we could see a change in the shape of the airplane, and then the landing gear would have to react to that change in the shape. Electrification is an interesting one, uh, because today on a larger airplane, you, know, you take off full of fuel and you land near empty you know, with some reserves, And so the takeoff weight and the landing weight are quite different, especially for a long haul airplane that's flying over oceans. Uh, An electric airplane is the same weight at landing that it is at takeoff. And uh, so in a light airplane, light airplanes today are designed to be the same weight at takeoff and landing anyways. Um, But a a medium haul or longer haul electric airplane may have a a larger landing weight than it does uh, uh, the the equivalent one does today. And so that could have some impacts on on the landing gear. for me, all of those are very manageable. What I see is perhaps more interesting is say, well, what can the landing gear do that really enables a new airplane shape, uh, that makes new fuel possible, uh, that makes the airplane itself more efficient? And uh, so we may well see a change in, in other trends because the fuel is one change, but also airplane shapes are becoming more efficient, uh, wings are getting longer. And so that, that drives uh, impacts as well. You know, we talked about this crosswind landings, you know, and imagine that the wings are even longer than they are today. You know, the amount that the airplane can roll to come down a touch is going to be reduced. And so what can the landing gear do to, to enable that, to change that? Those are some of the things that we're thinking about and we're trying to look at. How can we help our customers, the aircraft manufacturers, come up with airplanes that are more efficient that help meet everybody, meet the, uh, the environmental challenge and, and targets that we have?
0: The shapes are interesting. I'm just gonna throw out an example that popped in my head. So you take your traditional 737 raised 320. If you add it on three to six feet on each side, it raises the question: Do you have to rebuild the terminal because the planes are going to be wider, or eliminate certain gates? That opens up a whole interesting conversation. Absolutely.
1: I think people will be reluctant to do things which have enormous infrastructure changes, you know. And uh, so we can take an example of something that Boeing's done on the triple seven X. Uh, which is a great new development of their 777 airplane, uh, but it has a longer wingspan than the previous one. And what they've actually done is hinge the wingtips so that uh, they fold up. So when the airplane lands, it lands, but as it's rolling down the runway after the wings aren't needed to generate the lift anymore, uh, they actuate it and they fold up those wingtips and then they can get into the same parking stand as the previous 777. So they get the longer wingspan but don't have to change any of the airport infrastructure to support. So we could see that perhaps in a future generation of uh, uh, short and medium haul airplanes, uh, that could be something that's done.
0: I like that approach because you, you said, because if you have to rebuild the nation's airports or globally and they use the EU or, or Southeast Asia, yeah. that's a large infrastructure bill that we're not in a position to foot yet. So I really like that. And you mentioned sustainability. Sustainability is extremely, extremely important. How is Saffron reducing its carbon footprint? Uh,
1: we've got a, a number of, uh, of activities that are going on in that space. You know, one, one thing is we are committed to getting aviation to be carbon neutral by 2050. That's, that's in line with some global commitments. And really, when we look at that, there's a number of things that, uh, that have to be done. For us, the, the biggest carbon emissions come from the use of our products. Uh, so effectively, the aviation fuel that's burned to carry our products around the sky and so, in order to reduce that fuel burn, it's things like, well, how can we enable the more efficient airplane? Uh, but also, how do we reduce the weight uh, of the product of the equipment? And so, those are key areas. And about seventy-five percent of all of our research and uh, technology d- development investment is going into environmental aspects uh, like that. How do we how do we reduce that fuel burn? How do we uh, how do we help make the transition for the industry? Uh, the other area, which as a percentage is nowhere near as uh, as big but it's still a very important one is how do we decarbonize how do we reduce the carbon footprint of our factories of our plants of our day-to-day operations and for that we have some strong commitments to uh, to reduce the amount of natural gas that we are burning to to change the electricity now we are an international company with footprint uh, all over the world and so using electricity in one company country is quite different say than than in another so in in countries where uh, electricity is predominantly coming from thermal fossil fuel sources uh, we're actively working at putting in systems that are you know move to solar move uh, move away from those other areas we have uh, far less carbon intensive electricity generation and so we're focused there on on other consumers like natural gas and other aspects so a lot of activity uh, in the business uh, both on the you know the offices and the factories uh, but really you know focused on what can we do in the product to reduce its weight and to help airlines and uh, Aircraft manufacturers reduce fuel burn for the future
0: another industry that's focused on reducing weight is racing car racing safran's learned a lot from car racing what have you learned
1: well I think uh, you know we, we learned there is uh, wow the development time is fast compared to aviation yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know the uh, to, to come up with a new product in aviation uh, develop it uh, you know from idea to it entering service with passengers on it is almost a decade, you know, whereas the, uh, the cycle to put something out in Formula One is, uh, you know, probably weeks in comparison, you know. So it's uh, really a lot of the lessons we pull are on that. How do we work quickly? How do we take good ideas and bring them in, evaluate them? Uh, we use it as a, an incubator for some of the material uh, development. So where we're strongly involved in, uh, in automotive racing is on the, uh, on the brakes and clutches, things which use our carbon-carbon material technology. And it allows us there to work with different things like, uh, you know, what are some of the ceramic coatings that could go on that, a lot of coating development. And uh, we can learn some interesting technical lessons there and then see how they filter into the aviation world.
0: There's a trend that's going on in the mobility world of learning a lot from aerospace. When did Safran say, okay, there's a lot we can learn in, in racing. When was that decision made?
1: Uh, we've been in, involved in in racing uh, for a long time, uh, it's hard for me to give you a specific date on that because we've been involved in aviation since the founding of the business. But uh, given Saffron Landing Systems is uh, itself formed really from from three separate companies that had uh, developed many years back, which was uh, Messier, Doughty, and Bugatti. And so, uh, you know, the Bugatti company, uh, the the car company today, making uh, the Veyron and other fantastic things. You know that that uh, that company the origins of it is was part, it's part of the DNA of Saffron landing systems. And so there's been a, a deep involvement in car racing for for many, many years. Uh, but more recently, we see that, uh, you know, we, we've for a couple decades had strong involvement in, uh, in motor car racing with the carbon-carbon products and brakes and, and clutches.
0: There's a deep culture of awesome engineering ha- happening at Saffron. And I, I really like that. I want to zoom out for a moment, because you're a pilot. You earned your pilot's license in high school. Is that how you first became interested in landing gear? Your work, you're doing the, is it the pre-flight inspection, going around? Was that a, aha? There's something here. I want to learn more. Is that how you went down this rabbit hole?
1: Perhaps. Yeah. It, it's, uh, you know, I've thought about this, and I'm not entirely sure I can really identify that that moment where where my romance with landing gear began. But I, you know, I do. I did drag my parents around to many, many air shows and museums uh, as a kid, and, uh, and I, I've really always had a, a love of, of aviation and airplanes. And maybe it's because the, the landing gear, what you can see when you're you're not as tall and you're standing there, and you see that that's the stuff that's at eye level. Uh, but I've always loved the what I would say the wonderful complexity uh, of landing gear. You know, you um, they're they're a beautiful piece of mechanical engineering. Uh, and uh, they're solving a very interesting challenge and that i've always liked that about them you know there's something uh, to me really appealing the, the technical challenges which need to be solved with them are uh, are really quite interesting and uh, there's no single solution you know the uh, there's a wide variety of landing gear uh, just as there's a wide variety of airplanes and, and each airplane gets its own bespoke design uh, with its own interesting challenges and i think that's uh, what's really quite alluring uh, about it
0: you took the early with landing gear. You got an incredible job, and then you said, "Oh, we're going to get married. I'm going. I'm going to publish a book." So you published the SAE you published your book, "The Design of Aircraft Landing Gear." Yeah, really well done. Extremely comprehensive. Could you talk about the book, please?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, comprehensive, I guess, is the word for it. And I'd, I'd started off thinking, well, maybe I'll write a little pamphlet about landing gear." And a thousand <laughs> pages later, uh, we've got uh, we've got the design of aircraft landing gear. And I think you know, really, I. I love books. I love to read and I love uh, landing gear. And uh, this was a, a way of uh, putting them all together. And uh, the, the book itself, uh, you know, what I, I hope I've come up with there is uh, something which is, is really aimed at two audiences. You know, one is the the people like myself who work in this industry who are really interested in landing gear, but who wants a, a, a reference, uh, want an idea book, you know, leap through it and see how other people have solved the problem. And the other one is uh, people who are just learning. Uh, you know maybe they're designing an aircraft or uh, uh, they're in college and they're part of an aircraft uh, design team and uh, the the person who gets the the task to uh, to design the landing gear where do they turn Uh, so there's a book where you can open it up and you can uh, see what there is to do work your way through it and try to capture you know you you can't put all the world's knowledge in and i certainly don't have all the world's knowledge but it you know what i hope is that it's a a place that uh, you can find a lot of great information and pointers to where you can find more and uh you know, uh, just to try and uh, grab as much information as possible and, and help people out in that way, you know, help them find a solution to the problem.
0: If you're listening to the podcast and you're interested, you can go to SAE.org uh, and you can pick up a copy of the design of aircraft landing gear by Kyle. It's well worth a read. And he said, if you're in college, you want to learn it or you're like me and you're just generally curious, there's a lot of really great information there. And so, Kyle, putting this conversation into context, what is the future of landing gear?
1: Very good question. And I think until we uh, figure out anti-gravity paint, we're going to have to uh, have landing gear on airplanes. And uh, and so really, we'll see a lot of trends of uh, how do we reduce that weight? You know, weight is, that's the historical one we've tried to, to pull down over many years. But, uh, you know, can we get more weight out of it? Get more capability out of it? Can we help uh, airplanes enable something else? And one of the things we try to do as landing gear engineers is, is to make the landing gear as simple and as robust and as reliable as is possible. And simplicity is something that we, 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 we push for uh, because we say, you know, reliability is the, you know, complexity is the enemy of reliability, really. And so the fewer parts that are there, you know, the, uh, the more reliable it's going to be. On the other hand, though, uh, we may need to add a bit of complexity to a landing gear in order to enable uh, new airplane functionality. And so there may there are times where adding capability to the landing gear gives an overall life cycle advantage to the airplane. And so that's it. We might see, uh, for instance, if we look at the future, something like e-taxi, electrically uh, driven uh, wheels, uh, are a way of uh, reducing fuel burn on the ground. Uh, looking at existing airplanes today, uh, an e-taxi system could enable a 4% fuel burn reduction for some operators uh, flying short-haul routes from congested airports, because it can shut the engines off and move around on our electrical power on the ground. We see that perhaps future uh, airplanes may not have an onboard hydraulic system anymore. Today, most uh, airplanes are are using engine-driven hydraulic pumps to do their flight controls, and we use that for the landing gear. So we're preparing to be able to deliver all of the landing gear functions electrically. Uh, extension and retraction electrically, steering electrically. Uh, and so we're able to do that today if that meets uh, the need of, uh, of the future uh, airplane. And um, we see, uh, we'll see we likely see material changes uh, as we move. Uh, more and more composites are likely to, to come in. Uh, landing gears take high loads. Uh, so the composites you generally need are quite thick compared to airframe structure. Uh, and so we, we have some interesting technologies that we can offer the world in there as well. So um, weight. And reliability and capability for the airplane, uh, those are the key things that we are uh, pushing to improve.
0: You highlight a lot through this weight, and I can't wait for it to be lighter. It's better for the environment, it's, it's better for the aircraft manufacturer, and it's better for the passenger. So well said on that, and your landing gear is awesome. And as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them?
1: Well, I guess the, uh, the great thing is uh, landing gear is an exciting thing. I I, uh, I love landing gear, but, uh, you know, it's not, not just me. Uh, we've got uh, lots of people who are really interested in this. The The problems, there are still problems to be solved. Uh, and it's an exciting, every day is an exciting thing to do to, to create new landing gears to support the ones that are out there. Saffron Landing System is a fantastic place to work, and uh, we're hiring. You know, so we've got uh, 700 roles available now that we need to fill this year. So uh, come on out. Uh, we're, we're looking for people to join us. In, in this. And, and the Saffron Group, the broader Saffron Group, is a wonderful place with about 12,000 positions to be filled. And so uh, come and join us as we um, continue on this journey and push to uh, decarbonize aviation and find the future uh, of aviation for us all
0: decarbonizing aviation is the future because today is tomorrow tomorrow's is today and the future is lightweight landing gear kyle thank you so much for coming on sae tomorrow today thank you very much It's been great thank you for listening to sae tomorrow today if you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more please kindly rate review and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next be sure to join us next week when we speak with may mobilities co-founder and ceo edwin Olson. Ed will share May's strong vision on how shared autonomous vehicles can complement existing transit and help everyday people get to where they need to go. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International
1: does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.